Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it's pretty safe to say Doug Ford's progressive conservatives will form the next Ontario government. But what does the future look like for the other two parties? We'll discuss that. And according to a new poll, a majority of Canadians believe it's important their local news outlets survive the pandemic. And they think the web giants have a role to play there. And wanting a proper work-life balance, especially for those working from home due to the pandemic, is easier said than done. How can we address the concerns? Well, we'll talk about that as well. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. 24 hours from now, uh, the polls will open here in the province of Ontario for the provincial election. And, uh, well, there's some concern about who's going to win, although that seems to be a, a, a fait accompli. But a lot of other subplots going on here, too. And uh, to get us started on that, so please, uh, to uh, welcome our first guest, of course, Muhammad Ali is a senior consultant for Crestview Strategies, who's been following the election, uh, well, the hype and and some of the other things that are associated with the provincial elections. Uh, Muhammad, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me back, Bill. 24 hours from now, as we say, uh, the polls open. Uh, Just about every poll that we have seen uh, indicates that this is going to be uh, a, an easy ride for for Doug Ford to get not just get reelected, but more than likely uh, another majority government. Uh, what are you hearing? What are you seeing? You know, I think that's pretty uh, that's pretty on the ball, Bill. Like the, they're going to probably like I think it's a question of uh, how what's their seat count uh, in terms of government status. Uh, I think there's still an outside chance they could drop time to a minority government. Uh, status, but uh, all all signs point to a, a Doug Ford getting reelected as Premier of Ontario. Many people are characterizing this, and I think it's probably a very accurate uh, characterization that this whole election was really a race for second place. Uh, how's that looking? Yeah, I think second place is is really a competitive race between the Liberals and the NDP. Uh, like I said, look, there's the Conservatives are going to have are going to form government, and and the point about it could be a majority or minority is also a factor in who. Who swings into second place? Uh, the Liberals uh, routinely have a more efficient vote uh, in Ontario than the NDP do. The NDP have sort of obviously a little bit more of a uh, of a platform, given that they were official opposition for the last four years. But you know, it's coming down to the the nitty gritty, and it's it comes down to local campaigns who can get out the vote, who's who's effective, who's got the most committed voters. You know, there's this is also an election that's it's not really a change election, so the motivation to get people out. It's a bit tougher than uh, than normally, and so you're really going to be fighting uh, elbows up in each riding, trying to pull as many people as you can. I know provincial elections also have low voter turnout, so it's it's going to be a down to the wire. I don't think anyone could concretely say is it going to be a liberal NDP in second place, third place. But I think it's clear to say is we're going to have a PC government again. And for that to happen, and, and you know the fact that the Liberals are even in the running to to form the uh, the opposition, the official opposition, anyway. Uh, indicates they have to increase their seat count, which is uh, really kind of setting the bar low. I mean, they don't even have official party status right now after the last election. So any increase would be a, a positive, I guess, for, for Stephen Del Duca and the Liberals. Uh, but how much is that going to be? And, and I guess, we, you know, to get an accurate assessment of that, I, I think you and I have talked about this in the past. Uh, that would mean, you know, they, they're going to have to pick up seats. Are they going to win those seats from PC members? Or are they simply going to take back an awful lot of those um, disenchanted liberal voters in the last election that didn't like Kathleen Wynnum and may have swung over to the NDP? They're going to take it from both, uh, to be very honest with you, because the way the math is looking at right now, the, the PCs will also be picking up seats against the NDP. So right now, the, the party is going to lose, almost guaranteed to lose seats altogether, and has the most to lose is the NDP. 
They took votes from the, from the disenfranchised liberals in the last election. And the PCs also gained liberal voters who were just, uh, you know, those swing voters that were like looking at an opportunity and didn't want to vote for an NDP government. Everyone assumes that all liberals like NDPers, but that's not always the case. That's why they're liberals, because they're in the middle between PCs and NDPers. So they could go either way. And so uh, the liberals have pulled back a lot of, of that support. Um, again, to the point of, is this a change election? No, but they're going to make net gains uh, at the expense of both the PCs and the NDP. Question is, how much can the NDP reduce the bleed right now? Uh, because they are they're being they're fighting on two different fronts. And right now, in Northern Ontario and Southwestern Ontario, the PCs are set to take uh, take seats away from the NDP, even in the 905 as well. The Liberals are set to take seats, possibly in, in all of on in, in many places in Toronto, uh, possibly even in Northern Ontario, in Kingston, and in, in Ottawa. So. Uh, the, the NDP are really being squeezed right now. And I think that's the party to watch in terms of how much do they bleed in terms of seats and, and votes. It's an interesting concept, about, uh, and, and I think it's probably a myth. Uh, people think oh, there's such a close association and little difference between the Liberals and the NDP. I had uh, Matt Gurney, uh, who writes, of course, for the National Post and TVO on the other day, and I don't know if you saw his piece uh, from earlier this week. He essentially said they don't like each other. Uh, and I'm talking to politicians. I, you know, they, uh, the only time these guys even got along, I guess, was in the mid-'80s when uh, Bob Ray and David Peterson formed a coalition. But since then, uh, they, there's a lot of difference between the two and maybe a lot of animosity, So, and, and probably likely with the voters as well. Um, so, you know, to suggest that, well, you know, the, if you don't vote NDP, you're going to vote Liberal and vice versa, it's not really the case, is it? No, it's not. And you look at um, other parts of the province, like, again, like southwestern Ontario, most of those seats often swing between NDP and PC. And then other parts of the, of the, the city, or sorry, parts of the province, uh, you have PC liberal swing, you will have liberal NDP fights. Like if you look at Ottawa Centre, Ottawa Centre is a, is a, is a dogfight between the liberal and NDP. But you often actually get conservatives voting for the liberals to make sure there's no NDP government there, uh, sorry, uh, NDP representative. So it really varies depending on where you are in the province. And this is even a, an argument you can be making across the country that uh, NDPers are different in different parts of it, depending on local economics, local demographics and such. PCs are the similar. Liberals are, are often the ones that are in the middle. Uh, and it can swing either way on in terms of who gravitates which party the most. Because oftentimes there is long entrenched uh, um, support, right? And, and when we look at Southwestern Ontario, there's large, even that huge union kind of um, trend uh, because of the auto industry, the manufacturing industries throughout uh, that sector of you know, London, Windsor, uh, Waterloo, Kitchener, and into Hamilton. Um, and they largely vote NDP, but sometimes they swing to the PCs. And then when we're, uh, the Liberals were in government, there was a pockets of Liberal support, but the Liberals often dominated in, uh, in the GTA, in a little bit in Northern Ontario, and in Eastern Ontario. So uh, where support is, where you can form government is a lot different than just simply like who's, which party is it obvious in terms of flipping. Let me ask you about that and, and where that support comes from. Uh, because it's it's up for debate, I think, right now, when you look at what's happened over the last year and a half in particular. In the uh, the riding debates, uh, the uh, you know, the candidate debates uh, in the Hamilton area, Paul Miller, who of course got booted out of the NDP uh, after a number of uh, successful runs uh, for them, uh, is running as an independent, as you know, in Hamilton East Stony Creek. During the debate, he said, look, he says the NDP is no longer the, the party of labor, of workers. And uh, a year ago would have been an outrageous statement. But when you look at the dynamic here, you know, the uh, the auto workers, uh, Jerry Dice isn't there anymore, but the auto workers are behind Doug Ford. 
Leuna, one of the biggest trade unions in, in this province, actually probably in North America, is behind Doug Ford. There's been a real shift here. So that traditional support that most of us thought always went NDP is going someplace else right now. And I, I never thought I'd see the day where, you know, you're going to see all these endorsements for a PC government. But that's the way it is right now. That, that's got to have an impact on the NDP vote. Tremendous impact. And, you know, look, there's, uh, there's no monolith in terms of the union side as well. I mean, you look at federally, I mean, the unions are, are very much more in the liberal camp. Uh, so yeah. the, the, the interesting point, and you raise it with, with automotive, uh, this Ford government, uh, and credit to them, has worked also with the Fed, federal liberals in terms of driving more automotive investment. So at the end of the day, you can you can the NDP can fight for union rights, but if there's no jobs to fight for, there's no jobs that to exist for that people to put food on their table and, and a roof over their head. Um, it's kind of hollow. And and I think one of the NDP's challenges that they've had the last several years is their inability to. Um, showcase what real economic policy looks like and how are they actually going to create jobs. It's great to protect people on the job, but if you can't get them the job, there's no, like, what are you arguing for, right? So I think that's where the PCs, especially Monty McNaughton, who's the labor minister, have done a very good job in in, in articulating an effective strategy on being pro-labor, but really a pro-jobs. And so when, when, uh, when for decades, uh, automotive and manufacturing jobs were, leaving Canada to go to Mexico or China or wherever, you know, now they're trying to bring them back. And so people feel like, hey, I have real economic prosperity opportunities. So this is, you know, I'm going to park my vote where someone got me a job. This is, a, by the way, I want to go to one poll in particular, because, I mean, the, the, the consensus, as you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation here, is that Doug Ford's going to win. Uh, but who finishes second and third is going to be key. And and it's close, as you mentioned, the uh, 338canada.com poll. Uh, that was released uh, just a day or so ago uh, has the NDP and the and the liberal and the liberals almost neck and neck in situations like this. But they say, and then you and I have talked about this federally, it's where those votes are. In other words, you could get ten thousand votes, uh, and and I could get four thousand votes. But uh, you know, if those ten thousand votes are split up among you know a whole lot of area, and, and I've got my four, I probably win that seat, and you don't. Uh, that's what happened to the conservatives, of course, in the last federal election. Is there a possibility here that the Liberals might stay in third place, depending on where that vote comes out? Most definitely. I mean, that's why it's so neck and neck. And you know, there was a you know there was that leaked memo by the you know that showed the Ontario Liberals were looking at about twenty ridings where uh, they could net gain uh, at the expense of the PCs and to the NDP as well, where the the vote margin was less than five percent. And so those are your really tight swing ridings. And and voter turnout, to my earlier point about local get out the vote efforts are so critical because you could flip writings very easily in a situation where, yeah, we're expecting a PC government, but uh, does that mean that they get 80 seats or 63 seats? That's still a majority government, but that's still a huge swing in terms of how many seats could be allocated to uh, the liberals or the NDP that could form a more comfortable uh, official opposition. Uh, But right now, I think the the challenge uh, that, that both the liberals and the NDP have is can you motivate your voters enough to say, look, like we need to get out here. We need to ensure that the very minimum that the Ford government does not have a majority runway for four years. We need you out there. We need your support. Um, and I think that's where you're seeing the messaging right now from, from leaders like Stephen Del Duca, who's really trying to push saying, look, we can stop them, but we need you to come out. We need your support. And they're going to pick up seats. And I think they'll, they'll achieve at the minimum, uh, party status, but uh, they also have a vote, a, a base that 
was disenfranchised in 2018, they're not feeling that same way this time. And so can you swing them back? And the PCs need to maintain some of that. And so writings like, for example, Auto West and Nepean uh, are, are very much tight races. Kingston is another tight one where they'll get net gains at the expense of PCers because it was such a close race. And some of that fell from, you know, uh, traditional liberal voters swinging to the PCs or swinging to the NDP that kind of diluted their vote. But if they start coming back in a decent number, you're looking at competitive races that could easily go liberal in this situation. And then they could easily become official opposition. Um, and it could be an official opposition to a minority PC government, which then makes it really interesting for, for Stephen Del Duca in terms of how to position yourself for potentially, if you want, a coalition government with the NDP or to hold uh, the PCs to account that maybe in a year's time, you can topple the PC government and you have another election, right? There's, it, it creates so many different scenarios if you can at minimum get official opposition and drop the party, the governing party down to minority status. Let me ask you, I got about a minute left, but this is one of the rumors and one of the speculative points here is the, is the future of, of those two leaders, Del Duca and Horvath. Uh, the speculation is, is if the NDP finishes third, uh, Horvath is going to be asked to leave. Uh, and that may or may not happen. Uh, you know, if she finishes second again as the opposition, does that mean she can keep her job, or the NDP just saying enough is enough? And does Del Duca get a pass no matter what happens, simply because he's relatively new? So I think there's there's really um, two two situations here. One, you're guaranteed to have a leadership change between the two parties, so you're going to at least get one leader change. Uh, and I think that's the NDP because this is her fourth um, election as leader of the NDP and she's going to lose again. And the fact that she, even if she stays official opposition, she's going to lose seats to the Liberals and to the PC. So you are not doing anyone any favors. She's already not even committing to staying on as leader if she loses this election in terms of as a party. Uh, those are signals of someone already trying to message out there that she's already looking out the door you know, there's the the rumor mill is already starting that she may consider running for mayor of Hamilton in the upcoming municipal yeah. election. So there's that factor. The second for for Stephen Del Duca is I think scenario based. If he wins his seat, any form of official opposition, he's he has earned every right to continue to lead the party and to to contest the next election. I think where it becomes interesting is if he if it's official opposition. But he doesn't win his seat. I think it, it, he likely is still safe to be leader. But you know, it's hard to govern outside of caucus. Yeah. Sorry, outside of the legislature. Uh, but if he achieves, you know, a third party status and loses his seat, I think it's really hard to stay on because everyone got really excited and motivated to to like, hey, like we we made some progress. So the bar kept kept rising. To your earlier comment, the bar was very low to begin with. But during the election, especially in those first two weeks, he was firing on all cylinders, and so. Everyone's, uh, you know, expectations really rose. And I think this situation that happened to uh, Aaron O'Toole and Andrew Shear, uh, to the yeah. federal conservatives, where they made gains in certain areas or were competitive or held, you know, the federal government to a minority status. But ultimately, you didn't win and you, you raised expectations so much. So it's a bit of a scenario based of whether Del Duca stays on as leader or not. Um, exactly. So I think we'll have a better clear picture after June 2nd on that one. Well, it's interesting because it was. I was actually talking to a liberal strategist a couple of days ago, but they were and they were throwing names around about who might run. So I, I don't know how optimistic they're feeling. Uh, Mohammed, who knows? I mean, we got to count the votes, and that's that's what tomorrow's all about. Thanks so much for this, and I know we'll talk again right after we get some of the results. Appreciate the time today. Sure.
For sure. Babad Ali, a senior consultant for Crestview Strategies. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting uh, what's going on in the media these days and the, and the debate among many, of course, that's happening in Ottawa has to do with uh, well, the concern about uh, news outlets and, and platforms uh, such as uh, Facebook and others, uh, which are basically uh, using the content without their permission and certainly without any compensation. And uh, it's uh, it's become a real problem uh, because the upshot there is that means an awful lot of those media outlets uh, don't generate much revenue. And if they don't, they start laying people off or closing altogether. And uh, lack of information is always going to be a problem here. So let's let's talk about this and what the government's going to attempt to do about this and how Canadians feel about it. And uh, to do this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Jeffrey Devorkin, who's a senior fellow at Massey College. He's the former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough campus and of course author of uh, the book called trusting the news in a digital age uh jeffrey pleasure to have you back in the program thanks so much for the time today My, nice to be with you bill all right let's uh the, the book by the way is, is a great read you should check it out called uh, trusting the news in a digital age uh we're in a digital age uh and there's uh, less and less uh, possibilities for news to get out there because of what's happening i just a quick uh, note here jeffrey a couple of days ago i was talking with a friend of mine brian j Karam, who's on the show here many times uh, he's a, a political commentator on CNN and writes for Salon.com. But like many great journalists, started off in print. And uh, he was just recalling uh, the number of places that he worked as he was working his way through the industry that are closed now. And and th- I'm, we're talking towns and cities that don't have local newspapers or local radio stations because of this phenomenon that's happening. It's It's a real problem, isn't it? It's a huge problem. It's a problem for... Uh, how we see ourselves, whether we see ourselves as part of a community. And it's especially a problem that increasingly people are noticing. It's a problem for democracy. And what's happened in Canada is that although in Southern Ontario, we're fairly used to having a rich diet of media offerings outside of Southern Ontario and to a certain extent, uh, Montreal and Ottawa, it's, it's, a, it's a news desert out there. And what's happened is, is that, as, as thanks for mentioning the book, but as I mentioned in the book, what's happened is the digital economy has hollowed out journalistic organizations so that broadcasters and newspapers have been forced to a race to the bottom, as it were, to the bottom line, and trying to attract eyeballs and ears to their product is increasingly difficult. So what's happened for many places um, is that they've looked for cheaper ways to do, to fill the news hole, as it's known, to put the content up somewhere. And what does that mean? That means doing more stories more quickly, but often with less context. And so that means that what I call the low-hanging fruit of local news becomes the basis for what fills newspapers and broadcasters. That low-hanging fruit is weather, traffic, and crime. Now, I'm a great believer in weather, traffic, and crime. It's important. But if that's all there is, we're in trouble. And I think that's that's the problem now. And the federal government has acknowledged this to a certain extent and wants these large... Uh, organizations that that take content from from your radio station and from other places and reposts it without giving you any kind of compensation means that 
the broadcasters and the newspapers are going to get thinner. So let me ask you, I was referring to this because of this uh, Polar uh, Strategy uh, Insight uh, poll that was done, uh, in which they say 90% of uh, respondents agreed that local news is important. Uh, if that's the way Canadians are feeling about this, why are they letting this happen? Or are they even aware that it's happening? Well, I think there's a lot of distraction that goes on in the media right now. And that um, it's the news is pretty dreadful these days, as, as I'm sure you would agree. Um, the war in Ukraine and the, the killings of school children. Um, and we're finding, or a number of researchers are finding that people are saying, God, I need a break. I just, give me, give me something a little less uh, ominous and, and heart stirring. And uh, I was talking to a colleague um, at the CBC who has a music show and it's a great music show and I listen to it because it's well done. And it's also kind of a relief. But what has happened now is that that program is reading parts of the statement of truth and reconciliation. Now, this is incredibly important. However, I find that I go to a program like that just to get away from the news, just a little bit. And I'm as much of a news junkie as anybody, I think. But I also would like to have a place where I can go to uh, decompress. And that's the part of the problem is, is that everything is taken with such seriousness that there's no sense of understanding how do people use the media. They use it in a lot of ways. They need the information, but they also need the music. They need a few jokes. They need some culture. Uh, they need a chat. That's where you come in, Bill. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that it's that balanced diet that seems to be missing. So we either get bombarded with news of horrors or we get bombarded with trivialities. So somehow we have to figure out where the balance is and how best the media can serve us as citizens first and again consumers of information and, and, and content, but second. That's a, that's a challenge for us. And for all of us, and I, I understand, of course, sometimes you just want to kind of tune out. Uh, I mean, this is what I do for a living, and I love doing this. But, but, but i got to tell you, when I go up north, uh, the two- or three-hour drive, I usually have Stuart McLean CDs I'm listening to because I want a break uh, you know, from, from the stuff that's going on all the time. But the reality here is that then people want news, and it's not there for them. Uh, hey, I want to find out about this. I, I don't know how many emails I get every day saying, why aren't you covering this story? You know why? Because we don't have the 35 people in the newsroom that we used to have back in the 1960s and 70s, and neither do the papers. The, you know, the, the Toronto Star, you name everybody has had to downsize and as a result you can't be everywhere and you're not getting the information out there that a lot of people want that's exactly right and a few years ago when i was involved with a, a group based in the states called the organization of news ombudsman uh, we did a study of the impact in the united states of what happens when you had a two newspaper town that went to a one newspaper town and then went into a no newspaper town this is back in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm -hmm. And the conclusion was, is that in those areas that lost their newspapers, the tendency was for sitting members of Congress to get reelected with greater frequency. So that there was, it occurred to me, there is an incentive 
for people in power to eliminate different sources of information because whether they know this consciously or not, it serves them in a, in a very odd way. And I think that that's the, if we look at our democracy in Canada, not just in the US, but in Canada as well, it's not about having, uh, pushing for alternate political views. It's giving people the opportunity to sample the other kinds of thinking that's going on out there. And we're just seeing in the provincial election here in Ontario, the fact that it looks like if the polls are right, the Tories are going to get back in and probably with an increased, a slightly increased majority. But they've run a particularly uh, weird campaign, which is playing hide-and-go-seek with the premier, the peekaboo premier, I call yeah. him, um, yeah. because he's not answering any questions. He's he's having little statements. He uh, he shows himself a couple of times a week, or actually maybe even a couple of times a day, but he doesn't say anything, and he won't answer questions. And this has actually turned into a, a, a re-election strategy that seems to be working. And believe me, other political parties will take notice of this. And I think that this, this is going to be a real challenge for us as citizens and for you as, as a journalist to figure out ways in which you can get our leaders to be held accountable. That's the challenge. Exactly. And, and just to circle back, for people, I'm sure everybody knows of the circumstance right now. Uh, the way we do that, especially in, in this media, uh, is, is through revenue generation. Uh, you know, people listen to the show, advertisers spend money to advertise on the show. That creates that, that cycles. That's allowing us to do this. And when that revenue dries up, that's when the layoffs start or the closures start. And, and that's the essence of this debate that's going on right now, because the, some of these platforms are simply taking material from radio stations, from TV stations, uh, from newspapers, you name it, and simply publishing it and, and selling that advertising. You know, I, I imagine how you'd feel, Jeff, if you open up flat, your Facebook page and find, hey, they've got my book online here. Wait, they, they, wait a second. That's my property. And, and exactly. you know, this show is, is, is you know, the, the property of Chorus Radio. They, they, they can't steal it. You know, and you've seen all the ads on TV. When you see it, there's a disclaimer. You know, you can't do this. You can't reproduce this without permission of the blah, blah, blah. They say that on all the football games I watch. Well, you can't do it in this industry, but they're getting away with it. And, and government seems to know that, but they seem really hesitant to try to move on it. Well, here's the, here's the, here's the ray of hope, Bill. Um, the European Union and the Australians are playing hardball with, uh, with Google and, uh, and Facebook and the others to say, you're not going to be able to function here in Europe or down there in Australia unless you become, you make partnerships with the established media that's already there. And, and of course, uh, the American media giants are saying this is outrageous and free speech, blah, blah, blah. But they're going, they're bending. And I think that's what the Canadian government regulators need to uh, stiffen the spine and start to come up with some programs that are going to help us in journalism and as citizens and not hinder us. And, and you mentioned the offshoot of this, and I've talked to journalists on both sides of the border that said, as you say, that's not, hey, this could happen. It's already starting to happen. Uh, when the size of the media shrinks, uh, the, the news doesn't get out there. Uh, and as you say, if it's a one newspaper town or a one radio station or TV station, you get that point of view. 
And, you know, you, you look around at, at what's available right now, uh, and we, you and I have already had this discussion in the past, that we tend right now to just gravitate to the media sources or the news sources uh, that, that, that agree with our point of view. We don't get divergent points of view much. And, and if there's no choice, that's not even available to us right now. So as you say, politicians can say what they want. There's no check or balance on that. They tend to get reelected. We complain about the way the system is. The best way to, to achieve that is, as I know you mentioned that in the book, is, is you need more voices. You need more opinions. You need more investigative reporting. And uh, so you're right, politicians, the ones who are supposed to be doing something about this, are kind of at cross purposes now because they're benefiting from the fact that there's less information out there. That's exactly right. And I think that what we need to figure out right now is how we can do this. Um, there have been some threats against uh, uh, Canadian media organizations that may take part in this. Uh, but I think they, these threats that are coming from these large aggregators in the United States they're just they're just they're just faking it, and I think we have to we have to be really tough and really committed to serving uh, the people of Canada with the best quality and contextual journalism that we can provide. When I got to the states uh, to work at NPR in 1997, let me give you this example: there were 10,000 radio stations in the United States, all around the United States. Within three years, that was down to 6,000. And what happened was the introduction of digital technology allowed for areas in the, in the United States to be served by audio, but not locally, so that these large distributors of content would be based in Denver, for example, and they would serve five or six states coming from one broadcaster. And a lot of the uh, radio personalities, hosts, would change their names and disguise their voices depending on which part of the, of the U.S. they were being streamed to. So you had, so you, you just had, you, it, it, it was fakery of the worst sort. Now, it was providing mostly uh, Christian radio and country and Western music. Um, so that if someone said that they were Hank from uh, uh, San Diego and the, the person really wasn't Hank from San Diego, people didn't mind because they got their, their radio content being given to them. But they weren't being given the kind of context and content that people need in order to be informed. Uh, and, and there it goes. I mean, just to wrap up, because we're just about out of time here. 90% of the people said that, yeah, there's something should be done about this. So they're in agreement with this. Of all political stripes, uh, Liberal, Conservative, NDP, all of them, Green Party, they're there, well, except for the People's Party, apparently. Uh, they say they're the least likely to believe that it's important for local news. Uh, and again, I guess that's to focus on their message and get that out there. Uh, hopefully the voices are, are going to be loud enough that they're going to hear these things in Ottawa. And by the way, nobody's saying don't lose this stuff. They're simply pay, saying pay for it like you would anything else. You can't walk into a, a grocery store and just you know pick up a loaf of bread and walk out. Uh, you've got to pay for it, and that's product, and that's what they're looking for here too. So we're hoping there's going to be a positive outlook to this too because I think the whole concept of, of accountability is, is hanging in the balance here. Jeff, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for this. I appreciate the time today. My pleasure. Anytime. Take care. Jeffrey Dvorkin from uh, University of Toronto Scarborough campus. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Still working from home. A lot of us still are uh, because of the pandemic for a variety of reasons. 
And uh, it's interesting how this has rolled out over the last couple of years and the impact that it's had on productivity, the workforce, but on individuals too. And Ontario employers now have until June 2nd to craft a written policy on disconnecting from work. And this has become a very big part of the discussion now. And who saw this coming, right? Uh, joining us to talk about this is Steve Logan. Stephen uh, Logan, is, of course, is the postdoctoral researcher at the Institute for Communication, Culture, Information, and Technology at uh, the University of Toronto. Stephen, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Thanks for having me, Bill. You know, when we had this discussion years ago, anybody who's ever had this and say, you know, I, I think I want to work from home. What most people heard from their employer was, no, no, no. But you know what? If you do that, you're just going to goof off. You're going to be watching TV. You're going to be watching The Price is Right and not getting your job done. Uh, we're going to miss deadlines. It's, it's a bad situation. So along comes the pandemic, and they're forced to do this. And now the, the question, and I guess the problem a lot of people are having right now, is they're working too much. Uh, they can't get away from it, uh, and 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 it's it's having an impact on on their personal lives. Certainly, that work life balance uh, is all skewed right now, isn't it? Well, I think it was a long time coming, and yeah. you know my uh, you know my approach on this is in part historical. Like this was this has been building for decades, and it actually began when we first put personal computers in our houses, which was we're going back to the end of the seventies. Yeah. Um, and when we did that, and when we gave, when computers moved from being just like, you know, big mainframes in IBM to being in our to being in our houses, that boundary was breached. So, you know, we can say the pandemic made us start working from home, and we had been talking about this for you know at least ten years. But it really started then when we moved away from you know a splitting work and home and the computer moved into our houses and we could do so much more in our houses. And it kind of laid the groundwork for it. And and it's been exacerbated, I guess, by the fact that, you know, as you say, it was usually some big thing in uh, sitting in the living room or someplace else. Now it's in our hand. Uh, so you can't get away from it. And, and it's very difficult to get away from it. And it so it, I don't know, have we regressed with the progress, if, you, if, if that's possible? Well, it's funny, you know, somebody I write about in the article, a futurist named Alvin Toffler. I mean, some of your older yeah. listeners n- might have heard of him. Well, what he said was that we would regress. We were going to regress. We were going to go back to how it was in agricultural societies where work and home were mixed, except this time we have this new technology to do it. And he painted this kind of rosy picture of, you know, high tech workers being able to work when they wanted you know, he was throwing around words like asynchronous and synchronous communication, which have become kind of common words now that we'd have the freedom to work when we wanted. And he had a very rosy picture of it. But as you can, as we all know, there's a real imbalance there between, you know, some of the high tech workers who have a certain amount of freedom and a lot of the precarious workers who, like you say, you know, now that they have a little computer in their hands, they might be driving a Uber car, um, they might be delivering food, and the work-life balance for them is pretty much non-existent. No, it, 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 that's fast. In the op-ed piece, I'll direct people to the page where they can find this now. Uh, and you talked about uh, Toffler. I found fascinating. And I saw the quote uh, from his book, The Third Wave. Uh, he says, overturn the 9-to-5 workday, erode the distinction between work-home life, and turn the home into an electronic cottage. And then you realize, it, the, the, you drive this home by saying, he said that 40 years ago. Not 40 months ago, not 40 days, 40 years ago, he saw this coming. That's that's astonishing. 
Yeah. And what drew me to it in terms of my research was reading that book, The Third Wave, during the third wave, literally, like (laughs) during the third wave of the pandemic, I was reading this and I'm like, he really was describing the situation we were in, except he had very little, you know, sense for the imbalance, what would happen and how we would become. I mean, he he the electronic cottage from him was this little utopia he was kind of like imagining it would be like the communes in the 60s we'd have mm-hmm. you know different people together and it would be this kind of happy uh work live space and it's we we have some of that but we definitely in so many ways feel we can't get away and it's not just work like actual work but when we have access to sh- when we can shop when we can be on social media uh, when that data is being used by corporations, it's hard to find the distinction between work and home. And Toffler had even had a term for it. He said, we're not going to be consumers or producers, but we're going to be both. And he called them prosumers. It was just, he loved making up words. <laughs> and and as you say, you, you're reading this book and, and it's happening in front of your eyes. It's, you know, it's, 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 you know, as if you're reading something about what's happening you know, in a war that happened three years ago, it's happening right around us. And, and he saw it coming. Why didn't why didn't the corporate world see this coming, or did they, and just ignored it? Well, I think if you look back over the years, starting so the third wave came out in the nineteen eighty, there were already discussions about it in the early eighties in sort of corporate life, and then it's it's always been prevalent. Working from home has always been prevalent, um, but never obviously to this degree. So I think. It be, it, you know, it hit the zeitgeist and obviously with the pandemic, it became an, an everyday thing when before it was, so it was there. I mean, you can think of different reasons why um, it never caught on. Some of the things you talked about when Toffler was writing, you also may not have had the technology for uh, also for work to be safely done at home because maybe it wasn't secure. So, I mean, certain technologies had to Technologies had to come along. Toffler, as a futurist, was imagining the future, right? You obviously couldn't work from home on a 19, early 1980s personal computer. But as the technologies improved, as the networking, because the net, it's, it wasn't just the personal computer that was important to being in the house, but it was the networking technology that would allow um, for the sending and receiving of information. That was obviously yeah. key, right? So if you didn't have that, you know... I my my father worked for IBM in that in the IBM heyday in the corporate heydays and he t- he told me a story that um, uh, about working from home and he says they didn't want people from working from home because they were going to take the files and what if they lost the files yeah. so you know you had a, um, you needed the technology to really come around uh, for it to happen so, so we're you know, I'll ask you here, the work-life balance, we've, you know, we've seen the studies now that indicate that people are probably spending more time in front of their computers than they did if they had to go into a work environment or an office environment. Is it because we feel we have to, or are we being forced to? That's a great question. And that's why I find this new law from the Ontario government doesn't really get to it, right? Because they describe disconnecting from work as just not doing emails, not not nor not 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 doing email, not calling on the phone, or not doing video calls, or looking at your messages, and then they describe that so you're free from the performance of work. But we know that work is so much more than that um, than just writing emails. We think about work. We're worried about work. People are a lot more worried about work now than they may have used to be when 
you know, whatever, before Toffler was writing in the, you know, the 50s and 60s, a permanent full-time job for life was pretty common. It's not so much anymore. Um, Toffler was writing about that too. And so I think the question of whether we have to work or we don't have to work, of course, um, you know, we don't have to, but what kind of position are we in where we feel like we should answer that email? It, it, you know, it might, you know, it might, it might help in our performance review or whatever, right? So the question of whether we have to or we don't have to is open based on often people's position at, at work. And for, again, for people who are working on contract, it's a big, it's a different story, right? For someone than for someone who's got a full-time job. And yeah, I think- absolutely. So I think that's where we have to put these things into like a larger, it's easy to just to reduce something like unplugging your phone as disconnecting from work, but it's so much bigger than that. Technology well, is, is so much bigger than that. And and it's there. I mean, you know, I'm still working from home after, you know, all these months. Uh, and and I, my rebel move here, you know, to, to, I, I, I don't have email on my phone. And I, I don't put it on there because I figure if it pings all the, I'm going to answer it all the time. So I figure, okay, I'm doing something about work-life balance. But I'm here in the house all the time, so I'm right by the computer. And you're right. I mean, I, I finish my show at noon, and usually by two two thirty, I'm back up here, and I, I'm not working. Yeah, but I am because I'm looking at news stories and things like that. And it, it's, you know, it's not casual stuff, but it's it's work nonetheless. Uh, as opposed to as they say. They're saying if I shut my phone off, that means I'm just not going to work at all. Well, nobody does that. You can't do that. There's, there's always going to be that connection, isn't there? And that's the spatial quality of it, right? This, you know, so actually being in a separate space, like the old suburban idea, right? You lived yeah. in your suburb and then you commuted into the city and there was like a real physical separation. That was the one of the kind of like, I don't know, definitions of this, you know, live in the suburb, work in the city, there was that separation, that physical separation. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm leaving my place of work, so I'm leaving work. I'm going to go home, and I'm, I'm going to be, you know, sit in front of the TV or enjoy with your spouse or whatever. Uh, that's a, That line is blurred now. Yeah, that's it. And that's it. And it's the And I think that's the, the space element to it, right? So, yeah. um, so many of us don't go to work anymore. Um, we, uh, we have our work at home with us, or we work from home. So that alone, you're in, in it's in the space. So I teach at the university, and I was teaching online. And we were, I was talking about it with the students, I wanted them to think about it. I taught a class that was 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 really thinking about sheltering in place. And that for them was a big deal. Like I'm working in my bedroom. It's changed my whole perception of space. And that's that's a big deal. Our our homes, you know, don't become a like a refuge anymore. It, and it's interesting, as you pointed out, it, like I said, that's that's not the only line that's blurred right now. Uh, because there are other things that we're doing. And you talk about the fact that, you know, uh, women in the workforce may be working from home as well, but they're always working in home. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're multitasking, doing a number of different jobs uh, from one place right now. Uh, and I guess we're getting into the psychology of it here that, you know, do we need to to actually get away from this office to go to this place, to get to this place? Or, you know, or if you're in the same place all the time, do you feel duty bound to simply say, well, I should be doing something for for work tomorrow then? Yeah, I mean, the question for women uh, in at home, I mean, it's always been, I mean, obviously, traditionally, women are, are the primary caregivers of 
children. And um, it was even playing out that way during the uh, pandemic. And so for women, there has never been, or women who are the caregivers of children, there's never been a work-life balance <laughs> because that's work. It, it's obviously yeah. not paid work, but it's, it's work nonetheless. Um, and so there's never been um, a tidy separation uh, for, for people who are taking care of children, obviously most in, in historically, most often women. Um, so that also throws this, throws the whole work-life balance or the dream of it um, into a bit of disarray because for a lot of people, it's there. It's even historically, it's never been the case. I mean, we can call up that suburban model, but historically for some people, it's never been the case. Well, yeah. And, and so, you know, it's, it's business as usual for a lot of them. And, and, you know, mothers as, as usual, the, cha- the caregivers in situations like that, uh, or whichever parent is. Uh, but there have all been people, as you say, that take work home with them uh, and always done that. You know, if you're a lawyer or a professional of some nature, you got to get this done and there's a deadline. I understand that. But I'm getting the sense, though, Stephen, we're getting pretty comfortable with this. Uh, we understand it's not the way probably we wanted it to be or it should be. But you know, it's it's got its advantages too, and we're willing to put up with this. Although the other side of that is, we hear from medical experts that say, "No, you can't do it that way. You're going to burn yourself out." And and maybe they're right. I don't know what the situation is because this is this is like new ground for all of us, isn't it? Well, it's interesting because, like you know, Toffler was writing about this. You know, the idea of asynchronous communication, which basically meant you could write and you can do work whenever you wanted. You didn't have to do it like in real time. And for some people, that's liberating. They like to write emails, say, late at night. Maybe they have kids to take care of at a certain time. And then in the evening, they like to do some of that email work or they like to do it really early in the morning. So I I do think it can be liberating for some. But I think we just get back to, you know, the question of like who, what kind of job you do and what kind of position you're in. so, and that will really make the difference of whether you find it liberating, um, that you don't have to commute, for example, uh, to, you don't have to get in your car, but for somebody who's doing a different kind of job that maybe it's a little bit lower on the ladder, they're the ones who might need some more protection. Some more, for example, you know, this could be, in, it could be like um, labor kind of contract negotiations um, where you, you know, you have to set some some boundaries for people who where it, it is it might not be so liberating. Exactly. Uh, you know the dot so Go ahead. Uh, I just so good. We're just a bit tight on time here. Just want to direct our listeners to that webpage, theconversation.com, which always has some great stuff on here. But this one, this one caught my eye, and because uh, I was kind of, I'm analyzing my own situation as I'm reading the piece, Stephen. I thought it uh, very helpful and insightful sometimes to do that analysis. Uh, thank you for writing it first of all, and thank you for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Great to talk to you. I really like the conversation. Thank you. Take care. It's called "The Folly of Work-Life Balance" uh, by Stephen Logan on the conversation. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.